Well, I'm just going to use this one. So while they're going, just a reminder that we're doing a gospel series right now uh, called The Gospel Works. And by that, we mean the gospel actually does something in our lives, or it should. So we've looked at religion, and we looked at friendship, and how when we understand and lean into the gospel, it actually changes how we do or think about these things. Today, we're going to look at how does the gospel relate to money. So uh, with that said, Hope, if you'd come up and uh, read our scripture passage for today. We're going to be reading from the book of Luke. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 to 34. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 818, so 808. And follow along with me as I read, and and please keep them open uh, throughout the sermon. So Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If, then, you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more? Will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, 
and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thank you, Hope. fuller on this stand than I anticipated. I'm just going to move this. Great. Well, today's topic is money, and money is something that concerns, well, all of us, and whether it's going down to River Ducks to buy ice cream, whether it's buying a plane ticket to Scotland, or just paying your day-to-day bills, money is something that concerns all of us. But does Jesus care how we spend our money? Does it actually impact our faith? Is there a relationship between what Christ has done and how we think about and use our money? And what we're going to see today is that there is a very strong link. And actually, how we think about our money tells us a lot about how we think about God. So today, we're going to be looking at three points. First, the seductiveness of things. Second, the anxiety of our hearts. And third, the freedom of the kingdom. That's the seductiveness of, the, of things, the anxiety of our hearts, and the freedom of the kingdom. So first, the seductiveness of things. You know, basically, we all covet material things, and that's what this passage is saying. Now, I know I used something like this last week, but forgive me for, for doing this again. But Disney came out with another movie this summer. Anyone know what this movie was? Oh, close. Aladdin. Now, I'm not a sponsor for Disney. There's no commission here. But Disney keeps creating movies that actually speak to the things of our culture. Aladdin is all about a a kid who's living on the streets uh, in rags. And it's a story of how he goes from rags to riches. But not in the conventional, maybe American dream kind of way. It's because Aladdin stumbles across a magic genie. And the genie gives him three wishes that he can use for anything he wants. I mean, anything. If you had a wish that you could make for anything that you wanted, what would it be? You know, sometimes that's how we treat God. Sometimes the way that we come to God is the same way that Aladdin comes to the blue genie. And we expect that our prayers is gonna, will be like a wish to a genie. And that's what we see happening at the beginning of this story. At the beginning, there's this man who comes up to Jesus And he asked him a question. Now, he may not have fully understood who Jesus was. This man may not have fully understood that Jesus is, in fact, God. But he did understand that Jesus had a line to God. He knew that whatever he asked of Jesus, he would have that question be relayed to God. So he comes up to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, tell my brother to share with me. I mean, what? What what was this one wish to God that he could voice? Tell my brother to share. Now, 
I think that actually reveals what he most wants. What he asks of God reflects that inner desire that he has inside of himself. He knows that if this is his chance, I want to ask about my inheritance. So when he opens his mouth, that's what he asks for. And it's like Jesus responds and says, do you even know who I am? Do you even know what I'm capable of doing? I'm the creator of the universe, and you want me to judge this case between you and your brother? I mean, I can forgive sin, and you want these little tokens? Like, I don't think you quite understand who I am. Now, that's all well and good for this man, but what about us? What if we could go to Jesus and ask of him of anything? I mean, what would you ask for? Now, it's not just a hypothetical, because we can approach Jesus. We do that in prayer. And I wonder, if we reflected on it, what do our prayers typically consist of? You know, there's, there's four elements of, of a prayer. At least that's what I think many of us are taught growing up. There's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then request or intercession. And I wonder how often in our prayers, even in, in my own prayers, do I focus on the thanksgiving, you know, what do I have? And I'm really thankful for that, God, so please don't take that away because I'm thanking you. I, I, I like these things. And, you know, request, I'd actually like these things too, rather than adoration and confession. And I know that the proportions are off in my life. And if I'm anything like anyone else here, I'm guessing they might be a little bit skewed for some of you. But yet we have the chance, like this man in the story, to come to Jesus, come to God, and ask of anything we want. And I think often it's more about what we want to get from God rather than wanting to get to God. And that's what we see happening in, in this man's life. Now in verse 15, Jesus turns away from the man and he turns to the crowd and he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Right? Jesus sees through the man's question. It's not just that there's some legality issue about the passing on of the inheritance. He sees that what this man is concerned about, what, what his desire is, is covetousness. We saw last week how Jesus could see into the minds and the hearts of the scribes. And in the same way today, he sees that this man isn't just wanting an arbiter who's going to come in and be neutral. He's saying, I want you to come into the situation and help me get my way. Help me to get the abundance of possessions. But look at what Jesus says. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Like, What other situation do we use that kind of language? I mean, imagine if we're uh, walking through a jungle, and I might say to you, like, be on your guard. A jungle, uh, in this jungle, uh, a jaguar could pounce on you at any moment. A boar could come running out. Be on your guard because there's dangers. Be on your guard because we're not safe. And I wonder how often, if ever, I or we think of covetousness as a jaguar that could pounce on us at any moment. Are we actually on our guard? Do we have some kind of... Uh, filter up as we go through our day, watching out, being on guard against covetousness. But that's what Christ tells us we should do because he knows that like a wild animal, the temptation towards greed or coveting can snatch up any of us. And then Jesus gives a story. And he gives a story of, of a rich man. And in this story... The rich man has a plentiful harvest. 
It's not that the man becomes rich through the harvest. It's that a rich man has a plentiful harvest. So in Jesus' parable to the crowd, we see a man who already has enough and he gets more. His barns are already maxed out. And I was trying to think of a comparison that could might happen for some of us non-farmers here. And imagine, what if you put your name in a drawing for free groceries and you won? And you got maybe $500 worth of free groceries from Hannaford's. And you take that stash and you bring it home and you open your fridge to put it away and you see that your fridge is already full. What do you do? And that's this man's question. He already has a full bank. He already has a full refrigerator. And he comes home with more goods and he wonders, now what do I do? Well, this man was pretty industrious. So he called the town architect in and he said, I want to tear down this barn. I'm going to build a bigger one. And now I can store all of these things. The problem isn't what to do with my stuff. The problem is that I can't store my stuff. So maybe the parallel for us today would be you come home with the groceries and you think, I need to buy a bigger refrigerator. <laughs> like that, that's the problem here. And that's what the man does. But do you see the problem in all this? The problem, not just with what he does, but the problem in the man's heart. I mean, look, look at the passage again. It says, oh, maybe. Look, do you want to help me out? Perfect. In verses 16 to 19, we see uh, the, the language of the parable. But look what, ha- look what happens when I highlight a few of the first person pronoun words. We see that in his own uh, reflection in his own talking, it's all about him. Look how many times he says, I, I, my, 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 I, I. It makes you think of those birds from, from Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. It's all about him. It's all about what he can get, and that's the problem. And then we see what uh, God calls him. And in the, next, in the next couple of verses, God calls him an F-O-O-L, fool. He says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do you think your life is just what you have? Do you think that if you have enough possessions, then you'll be able to control your life, you'll be able to control your circumstances? Do you think that if you have enough money, then you'll have the approval from others that you've always wanted, or you'll have the comfort level that you always wanted? Fool. And he says that to this man, and then Jesus says, but wait, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Fool. That's what I am. Fool. That's what we are. If we lay up treasure for ourselves and not for God. Now, this is something that's hard to see in our culture today. You know, an American trope today would be uh, the American dream. That for you to really have success, for you to really succeed would be to grow up, go to college, get a good job, make a lot of money, have a big family. And then once you've hit those criteria, emphasis on once you've made that much money, then you'll have made it. And that's what our dream is. That, that's what we say the highest standard is in this country because our culture is so wrapped up in having more and more. Think about the people that we follow in the news or the celebrities we make. It's often those who are rich. And often riches follow uh, celebrities. So we end up following those who have a lot of money. And that's who we end up revering, looking up to. 
We're thinking of different celebrities that we might watch on TV. And not, I've never watched this, and I'm sure none of you have, but think of the Kardashians. You know, We see uh, these uh, celebrities on TV who just make a lot of money, and that's what we end up thinking, man, if, if only I could have more of that in my life. I wish I could have more of that. And that's what our culture teaches. And that's why when I was thinking about uh, this passage this week and looking into uh, reflections that other pastors have had, one pastor made a reflection in a book, and he, and he said, after decades of ministry, I've had numerous people come into my office to confess um, an adulterous relationship. I've had numerous people come in and say, like, I'm struggling with uh, this relationship, and I'm, I'm not willing to forgive. I need your help. Not once, in decades of ministry, did he ever have someone come into his office and say, Pastor, I'm really struggling with greed. I'm really struggling with making my life all about money. And it's not that people don't do it. It's not that no one in his ministry ever wrestled with this. It's that we're blind to this because our culture says it's actually okay. This is actually what we should be doing. But it's not just what our culture does. It's what so we do. And, and look at how this contrasts what we see in the gospel. The gospel is full of stories of Jesus' disciples, both wealthy and poor. So I'm not saying that money is a bad thing. I'm not saying that money is wrong. Money can actually be a very good thing. We can use it to do a lot of great things. But the example that contrasts our culture that we see in the gospel is that whenever we see a rich disciple... He, she is always giving generously. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 8, we see that Jesus has wealthy female disciples who are taking care of their financial needs of Jesus and his ministry. I mean, have you stopped to think about how Jesus ever funded his ministry? I mean, here he is walking around Israel for three years. He can't hold a steady job. They're going to kick him out of town. And yet, there's disciples supporting him. In Luke 18, there's a ruler who does not become a disciple because he can't give away some of his wealth. In Luke 19, we see a contrast to that. We see Zacchaeus, who is like the prime example of this. The person who is not only greedy, but he is extorting others. And when he comes to know Christ, he gives away half of his possessions, far more than the law would have ever required of him. And then at the end of Jesus's uh, at the end of the gospel, after Jesus' death, near the, right before his resurrection, we see that there's another wealthy disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. And he buys a new tomb. Did you ever think about how the tomb that Jesus' body lied in was actually a gift from a, from a wealthy person? And these are the examples we see time and time again in the gospel of wealthy disciples using their money to give back to the Lord. Now, I'm guessing most of us haven't struggled with building physical, bigger physical barns in our backyard, but I think we've all struggled to live up to um, the, the example that I, I think we ought to, that we're commanded to in Scripture. And I know that this is something that I've wrestled with, too. So even through as recently as, as college and, and seminary, I was really wrestling with coveting money myself. And I'm still tempted to do it, but it was, it was, it was bad then. And... As I uh, was reflecting on it, it was, it, it, it was because I saw I had a limited amount, and I thought, surely, you know, I'm, I'm not meeting that criteria to be generous. You know, clearly, this, 
this is something I can worry about later on when I have more. I, it's like an excuse. Like I, I'm allowed to, to covet money and want to hold on to it. Now, fortunately for me, my fiancé at the time was not content to let her soon-to-be husband be a fool. So we had many conversations and reflections on what, what, am I, what is my approach actually being to money? Am I actually coveting it? And I, I really was. And thankfully, through her help and others, I was able to see, I need to, be, I need to be generous with this. I need to see that I don't find my worth in my money, but I find it in God. And that's something that, that I wrestle with myself. But I think we all wrestle with it. We all wrestle with it, like the uh, rich man in the parable. And let's, let's ask ourselves some, some questions to think, you know, is this something I wrestle with too? So if, if you receive a bonus at work or maybe more returns on an investment that you've made, is that an occasion to share or is it just more for you? You stumble across money that you didn't expect. Is that an occasion for, for you to store it away or an occasion to give more away? Maybe you budgeted for the year and for whatever reason you have more left over. So you, you didn't stumble across any, but you, you went through the work of budgeting and now December is rolling around and actually I have, I have a lot more in my budget than I, I thought I was going to have. Is that an opportunity to support the work of the church or does that mean like more presence for myself? You know, Hope and I have moved a couple of times recently and I can still struggle to part with things. And Hope has a great phrase that whenever I'm holding on to this pen that I've had from college or this t-shirt that I've had from high school, she would say, can't take it to heaven. <laughs> and it's a helpful reminder that what really matters isn't the pen or the shirt or the money. There's other treasures out there. But greed isn't just a danger for those who have. Greed is also a danger for those who don't have. Because if you don't have then greed can manifest itself in, first off, begrudging those who do have. So maybe even though we live in one of the wealthiest nations of the world, and compared to most of the global population, we are in fact rich, maybe in this socioeconomic space, you're thinking today, well, this sermon's great, and I'm really glad that my neighbor is hearing this. But actually, it affects all of us. Because you might not think that you have a lot, and, and many of us probably don't. But if we begrudge others for what they have, then what is that but coveting money? And it's not just begrudging others. It might have nothing to do with anyone else. It might just be, what do we fantasize about? Not talking about images. I'm saying, what do we fantasize about regarding money and possessions? And do we find ourselves daydreaming about having that new phone, those new shoes, that new dress, that new car, that new house? And is that what takes up our imagination? Because often how we use our imagination can be a lens for what our heart really wants. So we all struggle with coveting, whether we have or we don't have. And that brings us to our second point, the anxiety of our hearts. Now, after Jesus tells the parable to the crowd, he then turns to his disciples. So this is a, an in-group conversation. The promises that he speaks of, the commands he gives, he's giving it to his disciples. That's, that's what comes next. And in this conversation, he identifies something that his disciples struggle with. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious. He identifies that even his disciples, you and me, the disciples of that day and today, struggle with anxiety. He's not saying it's wrong to take steps 
to get clothing or food. He's not saying it's wrong to, to plan your finances ahead, but he's saying don't set your heart on these things. Don't be anxious about these things. Don't let these things determine your joy. But Jesus didn't just identify that we're anxious. He also revealed why we're anxious. Anxiety is just a symptom of a much deeper heart issue that we have. And he says the reason why we get anxious or worried about material things is because we don't trust God. And that's why he gives the examples of the ravens and the lilies. Because he says, look over here. God is faithful to provide, even for those who aren't even aware of it, like ravens and especially lilies. And yet, if God can provide for their needs, how much more so for those that he loves will he provide? And the re- so he, Jesus gives this contrast because he sees the reason we're anxious is because of the deeper issue that we don't trust God. So what do we do? If we don't trust God... What do we do with our trust? What do, we, what do we put it? Well, the Bible says that we trust other things. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Now, we might often think of idolatry as something that pagan religions do with little statues, wooden, metal, stone statues that represent divine beings that uh, these ancient cultures might pray to. But that's not the limit of idolatry. Idolatry is actually alive and well today. It just takes a different form. An idol is anything that we look to for our ultimate hope. An idol is something we look to for our meaning, our significance. And we can make it out of anything. It can be clothing, it can be food, it can be money. It can also be family, it can be work, it can be a hobby, it can be romance. But it's something we take, and that's what we're going to get our significance from, our hope from. And that's how we're going to meet our deepest needs. That's how we're going to meet our deepest needs for control or comfort or approval or power through this thing. Now, idolatry takes something good and it makes it into an idol. So all those things are good in their own place. Romance is good. Money is good. Clothing is good. Your job is good. But idolatry means we're going to take that thing And instead of loving it like a finite thing, we're going to lift it up and it's going to be an ultimate thing that we look to for our significance. So what idols do we look to? What idols do we pray to? What idols that if we didn't have them, our life wouldn't be the same? For the man who approached Jesus about his brother, he was concerned about one thing, getting his inheritance. He had made an idol out of money and possessions. Somehow he wasn't enough, he wasn't good enough, he wasn't wealthy enough, he wasn't influential enough until he got that inheritance. So when he has the opportunity to ask Jesus any question, that's what he goes to. So if we ask him the question, to finish, how would you finish this sentence? Life only has meaning if. How would you answer the question, life only has meaning if. Well, the man who approaches Jesus I would surmise, would answer it like this. If I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions, and then Jesus, my life will have meaning. So can you help me get there? That's what it is for him. And in in my own life, as I was struggling with coveting money, it's not just that I was coveting money. I was coveting something from money. I was coveting something deeper. You know, what are those deepest needs that we try and meet through our idols? I think for me, it was security. 
I wanted to have control over my life. Now, if I have enough money, if I have a little bit more in the bank than I need, then I can control my circumstances. I don't need God. I don't need to put my trust in God. I can control it. So there's something that we use our idol for. And that's at the heart. That's what causes our anxiety. That's what causes us to worry. Because instead of trusting God, we trust in the idol. You know, our hearts are actually very good at making idols. It's something that scripture even points to, saying, don't just think of those statues. Think of, think of what comes in your heart. So in Ezekiel 14, uh, we, we see that God is speaking to Ezekiel and says, these men have taken their idols into, into their hearts. And later, he says, for their hearts went after their idols. So we see that idolatry, and this passage is talking about making money into an idol, isn't just a problem with our emotions. It isn't just a problem with what we do. It's a problem at the heart level. It's a problem at the motivation level. Like I said before, wealth isn't a bad thing. It's good to be mindful of what you have in the bank and if you can pay your bills and making sure that you go to the grocery store when your kids are hungry. Those are good things that please God. But what is the heart motivation? Actually, you can have two very opposite actions that share similar heart motivation. On the one hand, you can be coveting after more and more goods, and that can come from a greedy heart. On the other hand, you can give away almost all of your possessions. But if you're giving away those possessions in order to buy uh, power over people, to have influence over people, to earn uh, the approval of others, then it's really coming from the same heart motivation. So what Jesus is saying here is that idolatry is a problem of the heart. So let's consider what happens to someone when their idol is threatened. You know, the man who comes to Jesus feels like his idol of financial security is being threatened. So when he comes to Jesus, that's what he talks about. That's what he wants to get, have Jesus give to him because he feels like it's in jeopardy. So what we end up seeing is that in many ways, he's not coming to, to Jesus to meet his own need. He's actually coming on behalf of money. Someone like money is personified here and is sending him. Instead of him serving money, I'm sorry, instead of money serving him, he's serving money. It's like he's becoming a slave for money because that's an all-consuming desire that he can't break free of. So when he comes to Jesus, it changes how he sees Jesus. When an idol is threatened, it changes how we see Jesus because instead of seeing him as a God who gives joy and forgiveness, he's a means to an end, an ulterior motive. Instead of worshiping God through the use of his money, the man wanted to worship money through his use of God. I'll say that again. Instead of worshiping God through his use of money, the man wanted to worship money through his use of God. You know, we're all going to worship something at the end of the day. At the end of the day, everything you do is going to be fueled by some highest criterion, some highest value. So whether it's how you relate to your kids, whether it's what kind of work you take, whether it's uh, how you go out and, and spend your money, it all comes back to some high value, and everything we do is a form of worship. You know, two weeks ago we talked about how the gospel works in religion, how we take some finite good and we look to that for our, our enoughness, how we worship that and we make our own system of religion. It's very similar to making that thing into an idol. And that's what we look to for our enoughness. Jesus says in Matthew 16, No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Bible is clear. We all worship something. We all worship one thing the most. And you can't, you can't put it on par with God. Now, there might be some here today who are thinking about the claims of Scripture and whether or not uh, you want to give yourself to it. And if, if that's you, you might be thinking, well, okay, I, I agree that the Bible teaches that we all worship something, but that's not what I, that's not my intent. That's not what I see myself doing. I, I don't, I don't completely buy. I, I get that scripture says that, but where's, where's the other evidence? Well, it's not just something scripture tells us. It's something that our experience tells us too. David Foster Wallace, who is a uh, postmodern author, he wrote Infinite Jest, very much not a Christian, and yet reflecting on the experiences of his life, he wrote something that actually shed some light on how our experiences affirm what Jesus teaches us that we all worship something. It's a long quote, but stay with me. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there was actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get sorry, is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, a spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Troops or some invi- inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And he wraps it up. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. And it's the skeleton of every great story. So he's affirming that what we see in our day-to-day lives actually backs up what we see in Scripture. And though I wouldn't agree with him that looking to any God would be the solution, he acknowledges that we all worship something. And whatever that is, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to devour us or disappoint us. You know, he said if you worship money, it's going to end up consuming you. Because that all-consuming desire is going to taint everything you do. And eventually, it's going to take away all of your resources for other things. It's going to devour you. But on the other hand, it might disappoint you. Because if you don't give in to its desire over you, well then, it's not going to give you the things that you think it's going to deliver. It's not going to do that anyways, but it's really not going to do that if you, if you don't meet the expectations you set for yourself. So these idols of our hearts devour us or disappoint us. And that brings us to our third and last point, the freedom of the kingdom. We've, we've seen that we all covet material things. We all make idols out of material things. Whether we have or we don't have, it's something that plagues all of our hearts. So what's the answer? And in this passage, we see that Christ brings the answer through the kingdom. And he says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
It's God's good pleasure. It's this joy. It's this delight. It's his wish to give you the kingdom. Right? God wants to bring you into his kingdom, and that's his desire. Fear not. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. This is God's desire for you. So when we see God leave his heavenly riches to come down to earth, to live a painful, poor life in order to bring you back to God, it's his good desire. God's not holding back on us. God doesn't want to keep the true riches from us. It's his desire. Fear not. And that's what we see in the gospel, that God's, it's God's joy to bring us this deliverance. I love the passage we read earlier today from Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Right? What is this food with no cost? What is this water with no cost? It's the salvation that Christ provides through the cross. And I think this is summarized in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And in verse 9, and Paul, Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus didn't look at his heavenly treasuries, his heavenly barns, his ample produce, produce and say, you know, soul, sit back, eat, drink, be merry. But he left that behind to come down for us. So he left his riches and became poor so that those of us here who were poor could be made spiritually rich. And that's the answer to the anxiety of our hearts. That's why we can trust God. Because we've already seen in Christ how God has given of his own wealth in order to bring that to us. So there's only one question today. And it's, why would we spurn that love? Why would we continue to live in a way and set our hearts on things that spurn the love that Christ has given us? I mean, look at what Christ has done. In conclusion, I just want to encourage us to do two, to do two things from that. First is to repent, and second is to rejoice. First, we want to repent of how we make money into idols. And actually name it. You know, it was really helpful for me when, when Hope and I were engaged, and I was really struggling with this, for us to sit down and have a conversation about what are the practical ways that I'm coveting money? What am I hoping to get from it that, I'm, that I don't think I can get from God? Name it and then repent of it. And then second, rejoice in Christ. Just reflect on that Second Corinthian passage that Christ became poor for us so that we could become rich. And then think about how you can use your money for the kingdom. You know, at the end of this passage, Jesus says that we should give to the poor. You know, it's this one application that we can take what we have and share it with others who don't have. We can also share it with the church. That's the tithe or the offering. And in the New Testament, we have a lot more reason to be grateful for, the, for what God's done than even what the Old Testament saints have. So 10% is great, but, you know, God gave 100% for us. So we think about how we can give to others with need. We, think how, we can think about how we give to the church and support the work of the kingdom. And then finally, think about how you can share the most important treasure of your heart. You know, it's good to think about money and wealth, but the most important treasure that we have is the gospel. And I wonder if we covet our own comfort or approval of others too much to be willing to share that treasure with others. As Christ said 
where your treasure is, so your heart will be also. So friends, repent, rejoice, and think about how we can use our wealth, not just for ourselves, but use it for God. Friends, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your gospel that he came and gave up his riches so that we, though poor, could become spiritually rich. I pray that you'd give us that same heart. Through your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you begin to change us, to look not to idols, but to look to you, look to you for our trust, for our comfort. Lord, you love us far more than we ever dared imagine. Lord, thank you. Please remove our idols of security. Help us to do this individually and corporately. We pray in your son's name. Amen.